0: Howdy, olive enthusiasts, and welcome to Growing Texas Olives. The only podcast all about growing olives in Texas and made specifically for Texas olive growers. I am your host, Stephen Janak. Thank you for joining me today. It is the 27th of July, 2021. It's hot and it seems like our rains are over. We're back to our regularly scheduled hot and dry Texas summer. I hope you're staying cool out there or or as cool as is possible. Uh, I know work has to be done. Rain, snow, sleet, hail, hot or cold, work must be done. So I just hope that you're staying safe and and smart about it. Take plenty of breaks, drink plenty of water, wear the appropriate clothing, sunscreen, you know, all that that good jazz. Uh, Just take care of yourselves out there, all right? Well this is episode three, I've got uh, just two topics I want to cover today. One I'm going to talk about and clarify some information from, from last week, or, or episode two, and then I want to talk about the botany of the olive tree, okay? So first thing, uh, last week we talked about the palpita caterpillar how we had found the third generation here in some orchards um, in my part of the state and I went through my insecticide list, uh, pulled out the products or the active ingredients that would be effective against this pest and I gave you a little bit of information about each of them. Well one of you called me uh, after the show, after they listened to the show and had a question and it was a great question because it made me me think and kind of question myself. And so the question was, uh, it was actually about one product in particular, uh, carbaryl, or one active ingredient in particular, carbaryl. And in the episode, I had said that, you know, carbaryl is labeled for use on olives in Texas, but it doesn't show the palpita caterpillar as one of the pests uh, that it controls or that it's labeled for. However, elsewhere on the label, it lists different types of caterpillars, armyworms, cankerworms. So we know that the product itself is effective against uh, these type of pests. But the the question was, is it technically legal for growers to be using this product if the the pest species that we're targeting is not actually on the label of the product that we're using? And more so, for me more so, uh, is it legal for me to be recommending that to all of you? and you know I didn't know the answer right away uh, in extension we always talk about you know the label is the law you must follow the label and if you make an application uh, that is not um, uh, listed on the label then technically that that off-label application is illegal however uh, I had to look into this I wanted to find an answer for you because here is a fact there are no insecticide labels in the United States that list palpita quadristic malice, or the four-spotted palpita moth, as one of the pests controlled. So no insecticide anywhere claims to, to or is labeled to control this pest that we're dealing with in olive orchards in Texas. And there's various reasons for that. Basically, this species has never been recognized as an agric- agricultural pest before. Uh, this species, a caterpillar, to my knowledge, is native to the southern U.S., but it feeds specifically only on plants in the Oleaceae family. And really, until we brought olives, European olives, Olea europaea, to Texas, uh we really didn't have an agricultural crop in the Oleaceae family. And so, for that reason, we probably, uh, that's probably the reason that we never recognized this caterpillar as a pest. Uh, in fact, if you Google or, or search the internet for this species of pest, Palpita quadristic four spotted palpita moth, there is actually very, very little information about it. I mean, uh, normally, for like, for example, fall armyworm, you can go in on the internet, search for it, and you can find all types of information and research done on this pest: its life cycle, how it reproduces, uh, what it feeds on, where it's located, how to control it. But for for this pest, for the palpita moth caterpillar, very very little information, not not hardly anything at all. So. Is it illegal for us to be using any insecticide since none of them are technically labeled for the palpita caterpillar? And I did some calling around, eventually talked to some folks at a and um, These folks, this is what they do. They work in uh, agriculture and environmental safety, and they teach about uh, safe and, and proper pesticide stewardship and the laws and regulations regarding pesticide use in Texas on agricultural crops. And basically they said... No, it's not illegal. What I've recommended, what you guys are using for palpita control is not illegal. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, basically, they can't, the manufacturers cannot put every single insect species on that list, on that label. They can't put every species of insect that that product kills. That just won't fit all on the label. Plus, if they haven't done the research to show that it does control this this uh, or, or specific pest species then then they can't put it on the label either Well, if palpita is not a known agricultural pest and they're not going to include it on the label So basically uh, it is legal for us to be using any of those products that I talked about uh, as long as again as long as you're following all of the other directions and restrictions on that label as long as you're doing that applying it the way it says to be applied, then you are not breaking any laws. And so that's kind of the other point uh, about the legality of this product. As long as we are applying these products in the way that the label says they they have to be applied, uh, then we are not breaking any laws. Even though our, our targeted pest is not on the label, it's still not, a, not an illegal application as long as you're following the correct directions and the product is labeled for use on olives in Texas. Okay, I hope that clears it up. And so we're gonna go ahead and move on to the next topic. I wanna talk about the botany of the olive tree. I think this is going to be kind of a reoccurring uh, series of, of episodes. I'll do these once in a while. And what I'm gonna do basically is go through a book that I have, a book that I think probably all of you should have what I, one that I refer to quite a bit just for some good, solid, research-based, basic information about the olive tree and olive production. So this book is, is called the Second Edition Olive Production Manual. It comes from University of California, publication number 3353. Again, I recommend if you're interested that you go out and, and purchase one of these. I, I'm sure they can be purchased online and get you one and go through and read it but that's basically what I'm gonna do I'm gonna go through it kinda chapter by chapter and I'm not gonna read it to you obviously Uh, but I'm gonna go through and and kinda talk about what the chapter is about and and sort of interpret the information in a way that you can understand and also kinda translate some of their information to Texas terms so for example they talk about dates Uh, for example they say full flower Peak flowering time in California is May. Well, for Texas, it's anywhere between the middle of March to about the end of April. So I'll go through it and explain some things like that. Uh, this book is a 2005 production uh, publication, so it's a little bit, little bit dated. To my knowledge, they are supposed to be working on, on revamping this, this publication and putting out an updated version. So if I come across that ever, I'll, I'll certainly let you know. Okay, so if I want to keep these episodes to under 20-25 minutes, I better get going. We've got about 10-15 minutes left. Chapter 1 in the book is uh, the history and scope of the olive industry, and I don't don't need to read that to you. It's basically how the the olive tree probably originated somewhere in the Mediterranean or Middle East, somewhere around Syria. It was traded and moved around all throughout Europe and eventually all over the world. Sorry for the noise as I'm going to turn the pages here. Chapter 2 of the book is all about California table olives, uh, marketing, imports, and all about the the table olive industry in California. We don't have much table, or really, I don't know if we have any table olive production, at least not commercially in Texas, so we're not going to talk about table olives. Okay, Chapter 3, Botany of the Olive. So the olive tree is a member of the Oleaceae family, like I said. That Oleaceae family contains some some genus and species that you would probably recognize. One genus in the olive family is Fraxinus. Fraxinus is is the genus for ash trees. So we have several different ash tree species in Texas. Texas ash, green ash, Arizona ash. Uh, So you would recognize that tree. Forsythia is another genus in the olive family. Uh, Golden bell, there's some Texas Forsythia plants in Texas. Ligustrum. Ligustrum is another genus in the olive family. Uh, you would know this one as privet or maybe wax leaf ligustrum, Chinese legustrum, Japanese privet. Uh, there's several species in that legustrum family, some of them not native to Texas. Uh, but, but in fact, I bring this up because we have seen the palpita caterpillar feeding upon uh, plants in the, in the legustrum genus. Another genus, of course, is Olea, so that's the olive that we know. And the last genus is Syringa, that's the lilac genus of plants, so lilacs are in the, in the olive family as well. Moving on, it says the olive is a long-lived tree. There's some specimens over a thousand years old. I believe there's some, there's some plants, there's some olive trees in Lebanon that they claim to be multiple thousands of years old. They're still producing fruit. They're real gnarly and, and rough looking. Uh, but you can go online and look up pictures of those, uh, the famous olive trees in Lebanon. The olive wood resists decay very well. It's not rot-proof, but it resists rot and decay very well, which is probably one of the things that makes it so valuable to woodworkers like we talked about in, I believe, the last episode, number two. Uh, the olive tree root system is generally shallow, penetrating soils uh only to three or four feet, even in the deepest of soils. So it's not really a deep rooted tree. However, the lateral spread of roots can be, can be very considerable. In fact, they say up to 49 feet, olive roots have been found 49 feet away from the trunks of trees, so can be, can be wide reaching. As far as the canopy, it says light does not readily penetrate into an olive tree unless the tree is well managed and pruned to open light channels towards the trunk. If it's not pruned, the canopy tends to be so bushy, the tree is evergreen, the canopy tends to be thick, and light penetration doesn't really happen. And so if light is not allowed to penetrate the tree, Growth and fruiting will be restricted only to the outer shell of the tree. And there's some good pictures in this book, too, that show you what they're talking about. But basically the outer, oh, 18 inches of the canopy all the way around the circumference of the canopy, uh, that's that's where they're saying you're going to get the most fruit production. So this is why we have recommendations on pruning. This is one of the main aspects of pruning, one of the main reasons is to open up these light channels and have more light filtration deeper into the canopy and on more surface area of the canopy to enhance and increase chances for fruit set and fruit production. Olive leaves are thick and leathery. They're arranged oppositely on the branch, which means they're they're just across from each other instead of being alternately arranged. Uh, the leaves live for about two to three years, and that's an important thing for us to realize. The olive is an evergreen tree, but that doesn't mean that every leaf stays on the tree for the life of the tree. Instead, they live for maybe two or three years. It says olive leaves usually absize, which means they fall off naturally. Olive leaves usually absize in the spring like other evergreens. Think of a pine tree. Normally see yellow needles in the spring. Yellow leaves in the spring signal the abscission process, but yellow leaves may also reveal other physiological or pathological problems. So, I, I wanted to put that part in here because I do get questions sometimes in the spring. Uh, people send me pictures and they say, well, these leaves look these leaves look unhealthy. They're yellowish, They're, the tree is losing leaves, there's yellow leaves on the ground. Uh, the leaves may look mottled. In fact, I've had people contact me and say, oh I think I have peacock spot. Peacock spot is a foliar disease that does affect olives in other parts of the world. We have never confirmed peacock spot in Texas. It is my belief that what you're seeing instead is is the natural abscission process uh, that happens in the spring. Okay, moving on to flowers. It says the flower bud inflorescences inflorescences are born in the axils of most leaves so inflorescence is that is a group of flowers right think of i don't know what's something uh, common that everybody would recognize maybe johnson grass anybody know what johnson grass is when it seeds out that entire seed head on top well before it makes seed it makes flowers right and so that whole seed head, when it's flowering, that's considered an inflorescence. It's, it's the collection of all flowers on, on one stem, basically. And so there's an inflorescence that can develop at the, at the base of each leaf. So we call that at the axle of the leaf, where it meets the stem. That's where your inflorescence will develop. And generally, inflorescences contain somewhere between 15 to 30 flowers each, Of course, flowering only occurs on on the previous season's growth, and it says buds may remain dormant for more than a year and then begin growth, forming mostly vegetative shoots, but can, although rarely, produce viable inflorescences with flowers a season later than expected. So it sounds like a rarity that you'll get flowers or inflorescence on two-year-old growth, uh, but it can sometimes happen. So the olive flowers, if you haven't seen one yet, the olive flowers are generally uh, fairly small, smaller than a dime, smaller than a, than a marble. They're generally white, white-yellowish in appearance. Each flower has two stamens, so stamens are the are the male parts of the flower, and then of course just one pistil, the, the female part of the flower. Each tree can bear two types of flowers each season perfect flowers, which contain both male and female parts, and then staminate, or imperfect flowers, uh, which contain functional stamens, so functional male parts, but, but aborted or degenerated pistils, so the female parts are not uh, not, not functioning. They're there, but they look uh, distorted and stunted, and they're not functioning uh, pistils. That, that flower cannot be pollinated and will never form a fruit, and that's normal. The textbook says, large commercial crops occur when one or two flowers per inflorescence are perfect flowers. So, large crops, a good commercial crop can occur when only even one or two flowers on that 15 to 30 flower inflorescence, when one or two are perfect, that's when we get good crops. So we're not looking for every single flower to make a fruit. That's not gonna happen and it never will. We're expecting hopefully somewhere between one and two fruits per inflorescence, maybe more. And of course, this all depends on cultivar and your, your production practices and everything else. This is just general rules. It goes on to say that there, there, the reasons for flower and young fruit abscission, so the reason for flower and young fruit uh, drop, is not well known. However, pistil abortion is often involved, so the female part often, often aborts or, or dies. And this could be due, due to stress from a lack of water or nutrients during the floral development, uh, which can lead to pistil abortion and large populations of staminate, so male-only flowers. It says also excessive leaf loss up to a month before full bloom can contribute to pistil abortion as well. Uh, so an example that might happen if, uh, if we have a light frost or light freeze, not a light frost, if we have a light freeze, and we, we experience some defoliation, the loss of some leaves, that may affect pistil abortion. It goes on to say, Ultramicroscopic and histochemical evidence shows that flower buds begin forming by November. So for us, think uh, September-October time frame. Then, by about eight weeks before full bloom, flower formation is visible under low-power microscope examination. During the next eight weeks, flower development is rapid and full bloom in California occurs in May. Again, for us in Texas, that's about, oh, the the first to middle of March in our southern areas and about the first to middle, maybe to the end of April in some of our more northern areas. So we're a little bit behind, uh, excuse me, a little bit earlier than California. And it's interesting here that they talk about um, how about eight weeks before full bloom, you start to see flower formation visible under a microscope. If you get my newsletters, if you've been reading my newsletters, I had one. Oh, I guess I sent it out maybe early this year, January, maybe December. I can't remember. It was the last one I sent out, I believe. But I talked about, it was before the freeze, I talked about... uh, Preparing your orchard for spring and making sure that your trees have plenty of water starting eight weeks before your predicted or your expected peak bloom time. And that comes from some other research uh, out of University of California that shows that this is probably the most critical period throughout the year uh, where the tree cannot or, or should not deal with any moisture stress. Moisture stress during this period is critical and and can contribute to a lack of flowering and fruiting. So, maintaining adequate moisture during those eight weeks is, is critical for good chances of flowering and fruit set. Okay, it goes on to talk about the fruit. The olive fruit is a droop. That's a that's a botanical term as opposed to being a berry or a nut. It is a drupe, which is botanically similar to, to fruits like almond, apricot, cherry, uh, nectarine, peach, and plum. I found it interesting. It says the skin of the of the olive fruit is free of hairs and actually contains stomata. So if you remember from I don't know when they taught this. <laughs> junior high or high school, biology, uh, they talk about the stomata of plants. Usually we talk about stomata on the leaves. On the olive tree, stomata are on the underside of the leaf. Sometimes some plants have stomata on the top of the leaf. And and stomata are these openings, or they, they open and close, and they regulate uh, CO2 exchange, gas exchange with the atmosphere, and of course release water vapor as well as the plant goes through the process of respiration. So stomata is what really regulates growth, whether or not it's going to close a stomata during hot weather uh, to save moisture, or open it up to allow photosynthesis to happen. I found it interesting that, that the fruit contains stomata also. I don't, I don't know if that's particularly uh, useful to us, but I thought it was interesting. Okay, moving to the seed, or the pit, the seed undergoes most of its development starting in July and ending in about September, so you can push that back about a month, so starting in June, ending about uh, August, the fruit undergoes, I mean, excuse me, the seed, the pit undergoes most of its development, then the seed is horticulturally mature by October. And if harvested and stratified and washed at this time, it will achieve maximum germination potential. But the fruit is physiologically mature by January, much later in the season. And at this time, if you were to harvest that seed, uh, germination of the seed is greatly reduced if you wait that long. So again, the seed is horticulturally mature by October, they say. That probably means for us about the, the, well, I guess that means about September for us. And so they're saying September would be the best time, September, October would be the best time to go out and collect seeds if you wanted to try growing olive trees from seed. Here is just a cautionary tale about that. You know, there's a reason that the trees that we grow are propagated by cuttings. One is so that they'll all be genetically identical, right? We have these, these superior varieties or cultivars that are developed and we want to have a bunch of plants of all of those. Well, olives don't come true from seed, meaning you may not get the exact same type of tree as the parents that that seed came from. And so that's one reason. The second reason is that that cutting is taken from a tree that is physiologically mature and able to produce fruit. This is why you can go to Walmart in the spring or or early summer and you can see potted olive trees that have probably been grown about 18 to 24 months from a cutting, 18 to 24 months, and they already have fruit on them. That's because that cutting was physiologically mature and able and ready to set fruit. It just needed the proper, uh, it just needed to be well-established, well-rooted, and well-cared for. So that's why we see fruit on these these young, new trees in, you know, in box stores that are being sold in the spring. So if you were to take a seed or a pit and grow that out, That new plant goes through this period of juvenility when it just is is not physiologically mature and is not going to set fruit. And it's somewhere, oh I think somewhere between five and ten years that it takes for a seedling olive tree to actually be physiologically mature enough to set fruit. So that's why we use uh, rooted cuttings. We we can get into production much quicker than than going through the seed propagation method. One interesting thing here, I think this will kind of wrap up the episode, I noticed this year following the freeze, say about uh, the end of March and into April, I noticed in several orchards that I visited, olive seedlings growing under the olive trees, and I'd I'd never seen that before. Of course, I've only been doing this about, well, I guess about three years almost now, but I'd never seen that before. I don't know if I hadn't looked or been aware or just hadn't noticed or if they've never germinated before. It is possible that the freeze, the cold weather, the severity of the cold weather is possibly what made all of those dormant seeds ready and able to to germinate when they're there on the ground. And we saw a bunch of them. I, I mean, I visited, I don't know, I probably saw seedling olives in maybe 10 different orchards. And, and usually it, there's two or three seedlings under every tree. So maybe that was caused by the extreme cold or maybe it was just a timing or moisture, moisture, certain moisture pattern that brought it about. I don't know. But anyways, I just noticed that uh, I know a couple of of orchards that have gone out and and dug up a bunch of these seedlings and potted them up. Um, I dug up two from different areas and I got them in pots at home. Yeah, it'll probably take five to ten years before that tree makes any fruit. But who knows? Uh, You know, if collectively we all gathered, say, a thousand olive tree, olive seedlings, maybe in ten years we'll find that one of those seedlings has just the perfect set of, of genetics to make it adapted to texas and it's going to be the next big variety that's going to you know really make uh, texas olive shine you know maybe that that's a possibility that's that's how plant breeding works sometimes it just you start with the ten thousand seedlings and you weed them down eventually you find one that's that's the best and that becomes your new variety so there is that possibility well you know We'll keep an eye on them, but uh, I'm not holding my breath. we got a long ways to grow these out before we see if they have any promise. So, yep, that's it. It's a short chapter. That's it for this episode. Uh, I thank you for joining me. As always, if you have uh, questions, topics that you would like to have addressed on the, on the podcast, uh, anything else, certainly, of course, always feel free to contact me. Phone, text, email, smoke signals, pigeons, however you want to get a hold of me. Uh, i'm here for you i work for you so with that i hope everyone has a great week i'm hitting the road soon probably this coming week so if you'd like me to stop by your place and it works out uh, get in touch with me and i'll do my best to get over and see you i'd like to see everybody again it's always good to see you guys all right that's it for me take care texas olive growers